recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, Cliff Zlotnick, and our cyber jockey, Zach Zlotnick. Hey there, Joe. Uh, Today's segments will include the microband trivia quiz, Ron Alford of The Plan, and Marlene Linders from The Filters Group. To contact me, you can email me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. And we'd also like to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com, Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Normally, we would tell you how to contact the show. For this week's show, however, we are pre-recording the show, so... We will not have any text messaging or live call-ins, but we do have two tremendous guests, and we expect to have a very interesting show. So hang in there with us and listen and download as you normally would. Our show ID is, of course, 1547. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. I'm going to turn it over to Cliff Slotnick now for the microband trivia quiz. Hey, Joe. Congre- First of all, congratulations to Darren Hadima again, who correctly answered last week's two microband trivia questions related to building and construction defects. I'll give the answers to those two questions. The last week's two trivia questions were related to building defects. Question number one, due to a defect in the type of cement used to connect the bell tower or carillon on the campus of this Midwestern University, the tower had to be built twice. Name the tower and the university. The answer is Schaefer Tower at Ball State University. The second question dealt with the origin of the phrase, all good architecture leaks. This can be traced back to, the answer is the Oslo School of Architecture in the 1970s. The trivia question for Friday, March 16th. Zach, the envelope, please. Thanks, Zach. This week's trivia question is a very tough one. It's related to infection control. What we're looking for are the connections between the following words, Lyme, spelled L-Y-M-E, infection control, 
and the title of nobility, baron, B-A-R-O-N. So we're looking for the connection between these words, Lyme, L-Y-M-E, infection control, and baron. Sounds like a tough one there, Cliff. We'll see what happens. All right, our first guest today is Mr. Ron Alford of The Plant. I'm the insurance man. Shake my assuring hand. I'm the insurance man. Shake my assuring hand. TV and radio talk show hosts often refer to Ron Alford as the professor of the College of Emergency Knowledge, or the man with the plan. His humor about this serious subject provides consumers with a fast start to relearn how to deal with stressful situations such as car wrecks, disability, floods, injuries, and even death claims. He also teaches large and small companies how to reduce the cost of insurance by being proactive rather than reactive. He teaches and preaches that people and companies are still using outdated or inappropriate risk management information, so he invented a proactive strategy designed to reduce risk and insurance costs so that the dollars can be used in better ways. He then shows principals and companies how to redesign their thinking and develop systems to avoid out-of-course events, which in turn creates more productivity and less downtime. Ron's long-term goal is to educate consumers on the critical issues that he has found provide individuals and companies with superior management capabilities, as well as ensure better staff relationships. Alfred's program, Think Before Insurance, is new economic information. It makes no financial sense to buy insurance unless you know how to collect the money. Alfred sees the Internet as a new way for insurers to continue to train consumers to fill out forms online to save money. What good is a parachute that is filled with holes and has a few parts missing? In today's fast world of change, anyone who still believes that insurers and their agents will come to their rescue are simply living in a dream. This new economy is causing insurers to be more stringent now than they've ever been. Alfred is also a founding member of Consumers Against Insurance Abuse. Each year, millions are involved in car wrecks, hurricanes, explosions, disasters which occur to companies, celebrities, and even ordinary people. Alfred delivers to audiences who want to get real and be proactive rather than wait till it hits the fan and then be forced to learn. Well, I've been paying insurance for a long time, Ron, and uh, I've bought insurance for 20 years. I suffered a water loss now in my home. You know, after having 20 years of good experience with my insurance company, can I now expect preferential treatment? That's too bad, Cliff. (laughs) Yeah, I'm really sorry to hear that. Let me tell you what happened. Uh, Let's back up a minute, close your eyes, and think about a three-legged stool. Okay. Okay, now what the three-legged stool is, is there's those three legs are the three different departments of an insurance company. And that seat part, the the top part that holds the three legs together, uh, that's the management of the insurance company. That's the big boys. Right. On one leg you have over here called sales. The other leg you have over here on the other side is called claims. And the other leg is called investment. The question is, what do they do with your money for the last 20 years, Clifford? <laughs> I don't know. What did they do well, with I'll it? Well, I'll tell you what they did. They, bought, they, built, they, they loaned money for it to airlines, to buildings. They built trains. They built baseball stadiums. They built huge mega mega 
story buildings and stuff, you know, and they charge huge money as interest at this. In the meantime, you got that other leg over there. The, the one leg calls sales, that's at your buddy, your friend, your, your, your college roommate, the guy, your, your church member, the synagogue guy, maybe even a rabbi selling the insurance. You notice that, that you cannot get from one leg to the other without going through the stool, the seat. Right, right. So when you have a claim, the truth of the matter is that the guy that sells the insurance is not any more the guy that writes the check than the guy that sells you your Hummer or your HV or whatever it is. He's not the guy to fix it when you break it, is he? No, he's not. Exactly. So you, the insurance stool is really great. And don't, that's a pun there with the IAQ thing, insurance. <laughs> I, I, I wish I'd remembered that when I wrote my book. And anyway, the, uh, the, the insurance company is built like that. Now, then nobody is ever going to tell you that, including the uh, College of Insurance. Because even the people that work in the environment are so busy being an insurance salesman or being an insurance claims guy or being in the investment division of the insurance company that they really don't know what's going on on, the, on these other departments, and they are completely separated and segregated. So here's the bottom line. You have 20 years of experience. It doesn't matter whether you're insured by an insurance company for one minute or 100,000 years. The bottom line is that when you suffer a claim, you're no longer called a client, you're called a claimant. You move from one leg to the other. That's it. And they treat all claimants with disrespect because you, in their mind, are thieves trying to steal something from them. Aren't you? No. I'm just trying to get, <laughs> get fair well, treatment. Wait a minute, but that's what their opinion is. Right. Their insurance company's agents are hired to sell insurance. The qualifications from the HR department is you need to be have a lot of friends, relatives, be outgoing. You know, you don't even have to be really bright to sell insurance. To the contrary, they don't want people that are incredibly smart. They want people that are incredibly gregarious and hungry. <laughs> that, that's exactly, if you look from the insurance company's perspective, Remember that little seat that's way up there kind of thin, can't see it real well? That's where the, the management is. These are the people that hire and control and manage the claims people, the sales people, and also the uh, investment people. And they have to keep those three legs always about in balance because, you know, if you have a three-legged stool and you have too many claims, one of those legs gets short. What happens? The company falls over. Mm -hmm. Have bad investments? company can't work well. So they have to have the right amount of claims, sales, and management skills. That's what the insurance companies do. Mr. Greenberg at AIG is, is probably the world's renowned guy at writing insurance policies that we can't make claims on. You know, I've had experience twice. I've never gone out of business, never had a bankruptcy in 33 mm -hmm. years of business experience. But in that time, twice, I've had my insurance companies go bankrupt on me. And one time was in the middle of a claim, and it was a pretty nasty one. And I went from having $10 million worth of insurance, including my umbrella, down to having 300000 and being stuck in a state pool. So, yeah, I can talk about the financial end for sure. Mm -hmm. well, that's I'm, an interesting thing. I mean, people are really brainwashed about the insurance industry. Uh, and they, they believe it's a real friendly business because
because that's the uh, the company that's what they portray uh, on the ads. You know, State Farm cares. You got a good neighbor. We we love you very much. Nothing could be further from the truth. And and anyone who's not up on top of the claim process is guaranteed to be managed by the insurance claim process, uh, one way or the other. And that brings me to the side of it. Uh, what do you really do when you suffer a water damage loss or you go home and you find the firemen rolling up their hoses because your, your uh, kitchen has been on fire while you were at the movies? I mean, what do you do? What's, what's the knee-jerk reaction? Um, and on my website, I think it's called uh, ICanPlan.com. It's where I wrote a book called uh, Car Insurance Secrets. That it gives a scenario there that you're rear-ended. You know, uh, you. What do you do? What, what's the first thing you do? The world has been brainwashed to call the insurance salesman for information and advice. Yes. Now, who gave them? The, the world. The entire world. Oh, I got to call my friend because he's going to help me. He's my good uh, neighbor. Right. Well, that's the because the, the truth is that there are – have you ever had an insurance agent lose its market? you know why I mean by that? Insurance agencies, if they're not able to produce a million or two million or three million dollars a year in premium to the company, the insurance companies cut them loose. They say, oh, I'm sorry, like a, a bad uh, – like a banker does, a guy with no money in the bank. They don't right. want – Somebody with a $50 checking account, it costs them too much money. All right? So there are people in the insurance industry who are out there called uh, agency managers, and their job is, is if the agency doesn't produce claims, I mean, not that produces more claims than they do uh, premium income, they fire them. Can you imagine that? The insurance, the insurance company's president doesn't want. A, a, an agent out there that's producing bad a bad book of business. Who they do we call to... though, Ron? Who do we call when when we have well, these claims? It, 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 well, here, let me, Joe, back up. Let's pretend that you had uh, you slipped and fell off the ladder while you were fixing something, uh, you know, or fixing the, the window yesterday. What would you do? You're laying on the ground, all right? You're not. You're, you're probably able to get up and move. Oh yeah, you are. Okay, you're able to get up and move. Now, what are you going to do? You know, you broke something. Nine one one. Yeah, good. You dial nine one one. That's just a knee jerk reaction. That's great. Why? I need help. Yeah, and who's going to come? They're going to respond. The professional. The, the emergency responders will come and take me to the hospital. Okay, here's a good question. What hospital are you going to? Whichever one they want to take me to, I guess. Well, <laughs> Unless I... Okay, so where are you? In Pittsburgh right now? I am. Okay, good. You know within 50 miles of you, there's probably a couple of dozen hospitals, right? That's right. correct. Okay, now you know in your own mind and mind and heart of hearts that there's a couple of hospitals in the Pittsburgh area that you'd rather die than be sent to, right? Right. Yes. And those are the closest ones <laughs> to where we're at. No, but seriously, you already know because the Hama of the neighborhood, otherwise the public relations of that is that people go there to die, not get better. Right. Do you want to go there? No. Right. You want to go to that other hospital across town, the one where everybody comes out alive and feeling better. Right. Right? Do well, I? that's... That is sort of like general knowledge that's that shared amongst the communities and such. Now, let's say uh, let's say that you're fine, and let's do another scenario. Okay, now, in this case here, you sit in the middle of the intersection, 
somebody comes along and broadsides your car. You get out, you're okay, you're really upset about it, but now then what are you going to do about that? It, it's not a body problem now. Now then this is a car problem, which is far from the IAQ business, but let's see if we can get this straight. Now, what are you going to do? Call your agent. Right. Why, well, why didn't you call 911? I'm not hurt this time. Yeah. Okay, so there you go. That's a different mindset, a different brainwashing. You're going to call the agent. Why are you going to call an insurance salesman? you got a broken car. That's a good point. That's a good point. Your car is broke. I'm telling you, it's broadsided. The passenger side car is about in the middle of this chair where, you know, the chair is gone. Right. You know, if somebody had been sitting over there, they would be going to the hospital, and you would be calling 911 since you were smart and had your seatbelt and the airbags and all that other good stuff went off. You've been seriously inconvenienced. You're no car. Right? You can't drive the car. You know you're going to get the problem. So let's go through that. Tell me what you're going to do. You can help them, Cliff. Well, I'm going to take it. I'm gonna, I kind of believe that the dealer that I bought my car is in a better mindset to properly fix it and he's more likely to deal with me than uh you know some body shop that the insurance company recommends uh, you know i i drive a, uh, a sob and i would take it back to the sob dealer where i bought it that's what well, i would wait want a minute. You, can't, you can't take it anywhere it's it's broke it's in the middle of the intersection almost upside down it's laying on its side but what are you going to do trip away yeah trip away yeah, oh, AAA. They're going to come and get it? Yeah. Are they? Are you sure? There's two, now, let me just talk about the AAA. There's two, two kinds of policies for AAA. One kind of policy is where uh, they take it to their facility. That's it. They won't take it to where you want it to go. They won't take it to the stop dealer. Their deal is that they'll drag it back to their facility, and it's like three or so many miles. Then there's the, the other kind of AAA policy that, it's a 100-mile policy. Most people don't buy that because they don't think they need it. But they'll tow the car anywhere within 100 miles. That's the one we it. have. Yeah. Luckily, I'm a high-end guy, Ron. Luckily, I've had enough problems to know to get the 100-mile one, Ron. Right. Okay. Well, see, I don't know who's listening to this, but most of the people don't have that. All right? So they find out. And you know the worst time to learn anything? It's when it's too late. <laughs> yeah, when, 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 it, when the old story, it's a terrible thing to lock the barn when the horse is out in the field. Right. Yeah, what are you going to do? Uh, it, it just doesn't work. But anyway, the insurance industry, again, brainwashes the people, and they let them to believe that this is the process that you need to do. I mean, God knows that there's a, a huge, there's 2,400 insurance companies out there to pick from. You have a better chance pretty much as of, um, you know, getting run over by a cab than you do picking the best insurance company in America. Who's the worst person to ask what's the best insurance company? Someone who has a financial interest in it. The salesman. Right. Yeah, you know, because the salesmen are always going to say, oh, this is the best. I mean, you've already been led to two companies that have gone beat up. Let's That's take your, your example and let's, let's make it a little more applicable to the um – built environment now i've got a, a water damage who's the first person i call I, I don't know you tell me you're in the business so what would you do you got you you come home and you found out that your house is underwater tell me how the water got there first there's a lot water comes from a lot of directions uh, i got a broken pipe which one 
uh, going to my uh, – well, I just had this happen, actually. It's underneath the slab. It's a cold water line underneath the slab of my ranch home. Uh-huh, under the slab and the cold water pipe under the slab? Yep. My I first call was the plumber. <laughs> I, 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 well, the, yeah, you better damn well know where to shut the water off. But if it's coming from out of doors inside, my question to you is, are you sure you're insured? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, for that claim, I, I think he's insured. For, if it's coming from where? No. If it's coming from your pipe, you're insured. If anything, it's underground. I'm reasonably sure the standard homeowner's policy in the state of New York and Florida and a bunch of other places are not covered. All right? If the break occurs under the ground, in the slab, or somewhere outside, only where from the disconnect from the shutoff valve on the inside of the house forward, I believe is that covered. Now, I can be wrong. I'm not making this decision. I'm just suggesting that you look into the contract real carefully because the uh, the under ground break uh, would not be from a freeze because it's under the slab. It would be because of earth movement or crummy uh, work. And the insurance companies know that that happens too often and they, that's why it's excluded. It's kind of like floodwaters, uh, you know, when you're living next to a river. All that right. too is not covered under the standard homeowner's policy. Well, let's say I've gone away for the weekend. I come back and the um, line to my Ice maker has broken. I've got water. Ah, everywhere. now guess what? That's a covered loss. Okay. All right. No question about that one in my mind. I don't care what state you live in. So yeah, that's a covered loss. You got a whole. Uh, let's see. Well, you got water all over the uh, kitchen, and it's leaked into the living room, and it's in the wall-to-wall carpet, and that's a little one-eighth inch line. It's tiny, but boy, I'll tell you, a lot of water goes through it in a forty-eight hour period. Let me ask you a question, because I had a situation very similar to this. I had a friend of mine who was getting married the following day. Uh, she and her husband were moving into this house. They already you know, were getting it ready to occupy and so on and so forth. Did they, they own it, or were they renting it? No, they owned. They, they, they had bought this house, and they were going to move okay. into it. Okay. And uh, what they did is they went out to a big box store. I'm not going to mention their name. It uh, starts with an S. And uh, <laughs> also ends in an S. And uh, they went out and they bought a new refrigerator with a, um, you know, the, the ice maker, the water chiller, the whole deal. And they also had their plumber arranged to come in the next day and put in a copper tube in order to run from, you know, where they were going to draw the water into the appliance. When the Folks came from the big box store. They said, oh, we can hook this up for you. It's relatively simple, and, you know, we'll do it at no charge while we're here. You know, just and go ahead and give us a tip and everything. So the bottom line was they went ahead and did this, and it ended up leaking. Ended up causing a pretty significant water damage in their kitchen and in their game room uh, down below. They called the big box store back, and they ended up getting the runaround. Uh, they couldn't talk to anyone. The people that they talked to were ignorant. Uh, they said, you know, it's not our fault, uh, so on and so forth. And they uh, were pretty upset. And actually, they ended up calling me, and I went over and, uh, you know, I dealt with it. I extracted the water. I took the photos. I, you know, put in some drying equipment. I sprayed some antimicrobials and uh, so on and so forth. But they had a huge problem trying to get the big box store in order to react to a problem that they had caused. Well, here, here's why. Guess what? 
Remember, advice, good advice, is what right. is worth what you pay for it. Right. Okay, so in this case, there, the big box store sold it. Did they sell it with installation? Um, no. I guess delivery, no, they, yeah. No, no, delivery, not installation. What happened was that they got conned by the truck drivers who were making a few bucks on the side. That's not covered. The big box store, it's not their deal. My, my story is that if that happened to me, I would ignore them. I would be ticked, of course. But I would call the insurance company immediately because it's the insurance company that is the one that's going to come up with the funding for this thing. You mean and the, you mean yeah, the, the homeowner's policy. Correct. Okay. That, that's exactly what we did, and it turned yeah, out and, coming and, out well. And that has to be because that's an insurable event. Guess what? Later on, if there's a liability issue somewhere down the road, your insurance company, your homeowner's first policy – those people have the right to subrogate. They're going to go to bigbox.com and say, hey, you got some uh, liability insurance? You do? Isn't that wonderful? Then they're going to hire two more big-ass big, big, big ass law firms, one here, one there. One is going to be the offensive team, and one's going to be the defensive team, and they're going to duke it out to try and get the money back from the big box company's insurance company. That's how it works. Bottom line, insurance companies employ more lawyers overtly and inadvertently than any other industry in the world. Now, Ron... If it, if it weren't for insurance, most of the lawyers, as we know them, would be destitute today. They would be out OOB, or out <laughs> of business. <laughs> we um, do a lot with water loss and fire, etc., and you hear these different terms, and I wondered if you could explain the difference between an independent adjuster, a company adjuster, and a public adjuster. And when Absolutely. you would when you would use them? Yep, be happy to. An independent adjuster is a is an adjuster that's licensed, if where required in the states that they function. Uh, they are uh, they they make a living dealing with and working for the twenty four hundred insurance companies. Uh, and here's why: it's cost efficient for them. Let's suppose you have the Boham Dunk Insurance Company and Boham Dunk to sell insurance in Pennsylvania. And they only sell a few policies a year there. Can they afford to have a local uh, claims office in Pittsburgh? No, they can't. It's not cost-efficient. So when they have a claimant there, they hire the local uh, independent adjuster who comes over and adjusts that claim. A company adjuster, like one who works for a state farm, progressive, uh, uh, the big boys, the, the top ten, they have claims offices all over the country, like USAA, uh, those guys. Uh, they are so large, and they have so many uh, insurers around that for every – and they have the numbers. They're masters at actuarial science, that they know that if they have 100,000 claimants or policies uh, in uh, one county someplace, well, they're going to have a claims office because it's cost-efficient to do so. Now, then, they both work – for the insurance company and against the claimant. On the other side of the fence, there's another thing called a public adjuster. People get this wrong all the time, and, and folks have no clue what these people are, are about, but these are commissioned insurance adjusters who file and process and make claims against insurance companies in favor for the victims. And it's only for property and casual property insurance they're not they don't work and do this for car insurance not for anything else that's 
that's because the lawyers don't want the public adjuster stepping on their toes. And a lawyer, as a matter of fact, is one of the most unqualified people anywhere to file a, a property insurance claim because they know little to nothing about it. And in some cases, lawyers will hire public adjusters to work or suggest that uh, the claimants hire public adjusters to work for them in severe claim losses, such as total uh, total losses and uh, big claims on property insurance. You know, generally uh, generally speaking, Ron, would you say that public adjusters provide a valuable service? Oh, yeah, absolutely, with some exceptions. Right. There are some public adjusters out there who are nothing more or less than contractors in disguise. Right. I mean, there's a scam going on every minute of the day in the insurance industry, and you really need to know what you're dealing with. But there are real good public adjusters that are worth their weight in gold. And the, 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 in most cases, I think the limits are something like 6 or 8 or 10 or 12 percent of the value of the claim. They're limited to that. And in my opinion, they're worth every penny of it. A uh, long, long time ago, I created uh, a, another type of business called a loss consultant, where I do it, actually. If you go to ronalford.com, you'll see my smiley face there. And I coach people. Uh, for a fee, I charge $125 an hour all right, to talk to people on the phone and, co- and coach them through uh, the insurance claim process. Uh, and, and I call myself a loss control consultant because that's what I am about. I, in this particular case, which is the commercial here, uh, I help people recover the most money that they can legally in the shortest period of time. Now, if your time is not important, you know, then the insurance company is going to stretch it out for years because they're called institutions. They can last for years. You can't. You know, it's they, real, they, I was going to say, it's really, and, and, it's, it's really not an even match, is it? Uh, but, absolutely but, uneven. Right. Yeah, right. Let's, Clifford, you're a tall guy. Go up and stand next door to any insurance company in America and look how small you look. Right. Right, and it's like... Uh, on the front of a book that I wrote, I commissioned a kid to write, uh, to do a, um, uh, 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 a line drawing about, uh, a graphic about what, uh, what the insurance industry looks like. And I said, well, here's what I think the insurance really looks like. It's like playing a tennis match. You know, on one side of the net, you have one person there with a little tiny racket, you know. And on the other side of the net, you have like 35 or 40 people with huge rackets on the other side and this is the the game of 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 insurance for consumers it's a visual that you'll only see in a place like that because the victim has no chance of one against 30 people and that's what you're playing with with you deal with an insurance company it's not just one you against the insurance salesman or that you got a whole company against you the whole departments of people, they've got SIU, special unit investigators that will come out, you know, and spy on your ass to make sure <laughs> that, that they'll do it. They, they have a huge connection to the credit bureau. They will do credit checks on you if you file a claim because they know that people burn their houses down, or at least that happened a couple of times. So, therefore, everybody now is guilty of arson when they have a substantial fire if you do not have a good credit rating. They no. use, huh? I was just curious, when Did an insurance that, company you know? comes in, no, I, I didn't, but I, I certainly, well, well now that I I'm... Did. 
I know every trick that they can pull. Why? Because people call me all the time telling me, you know, that, that my house caught on fire. I'm living in a trailer. They're not paying the claim because they're accusing me of arson. I say to them, call the cops. Have them put my ass in jail or pay the claim, either or, one or the other. You either pay the claim or put me in jail. But no, don't hang me out to dry because I'm starving to death from air. You're suffocating me. Let me hang like this. You know, Ron, Ron, like like you, in in my experience, I've seen many occasions where uh, the insurance company comes out, they put a sign uh, on the building, uh, arson investigation, they put all that yellow tape around it and so on and so so forth. I was going to ask you uh, whether in your history, whether you've ever seen them uh, say, no, 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 uh, there wasn't arson in this particular case. They just tend to take their sign down and go away, don't they? they? They never say that this person was innocent, do they? Never. They don't know. They would never do that. And here's the other story. Have you ever heard? Well, <laughs> there's no such thing as an association of, of insurance consumers. I tried my best to build one at one time, and it just doesn't exist. There's a, there's a bunch of crap that's out there, like uh, uh, there's some gal who's a former state farm agent that, that started the uh, Policyholders of America, I think. And then there's another one. But these people are really their turncoats. They at one time were the insurance uh, companies, the star insurance claims adjusters. And this one particular lady got canned or something after 30 years of being the best, denying more claims than any other woman in State Farm. And then she turned over and she got fired or or something. But anyhow, she became uh, an advocate for the... um, the consumer, the policyholders of America. And the bottom line, the question is, how do you get funded, lady? The answer is that she steers all these poor bastards to lawyers, and they commission her. Right, the way I see it, because you don't live on air. You know, you have to have peanut butter. Ron, when one of the big issues today with respect to the um, water damage professionals we deal with is the utilization of approved contractor lists. If an insurance company, well, that's what, that's my question. I guess if an insurance company insists that an an insured chooses a contractor from an approved list, do they have to do that? No. Matter of fact, in most cases in the collision repair business, that's illegal. That's called steering. And in lots of states around the country, steering or forcing an insured to go and do business with a, a specific designated uh, repair facility is absolutely illegal. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, of, of slime buckets. You know, the, the real truth is that, that, that there are a huge amount of people who are articulate incompetence in this world. Uh, they, the words, don't worry, no problem, I'll take care of everything, are the most soothing things in the world. It's a question, how do you make that work? How do you get that taken care of? How do you arrange for yourself not to become a victim of of that smooth-sounding thing? The last thing you want to do is to do business with an articulate incompetent. What you want is an articulate competent or an inarticulate competent, people that really know what they're doing but may not be able to address it properly in the language that you understand. And that takes time to do that. As the example, let's go, Joe, back to your car. It's still sitting there in the middle of the intersection because you never did anything with it. All right? Now, 
I do not know how long you're going to sit there, but the state's going to get ticked if you don't get it off the road. Now, get it up. Tell me what you're going to do with the car. I'm going back to my trip away, but I guess... Uh, All right, where are they going to take it? They're going to take it to my, my mechanic. I have a mechanic. <laughs> Who's your guy? My guy is a uh, uh, good old boy from Somerset, uh, Jerry Clark. I love, old boys. I love him. Jerry. Now, now there's two kinds of collision. There's two kinds of mechanics. One is the guy that fixes the engine and the drivetrain and the brakes and the training. Those kinds of guys. All right, that's one guy. And now then the other kind of guy is the guy that takes this gnarled mess that looks like a beer can that's been half folded up and unfolds it and puts it back into uh, condition. Now, there's two kinds of repair people, those who fix cars and those who remanufacture them. Which one are you going to take your car to? Mm, tough question, That's Ron. That's <laughs> two. Huh? Tough question. It sure is, because there's, again, that good old boy friend of yours, just because he's a nice guy, drinks beer, you know, and drives a nice pickup truck, does that mean that your car is going to be put on a bench and, and repaired by a guy that should be making like 80 bucks an hour to do the job? Or is he going to be forced to go to some guy that has got a shade tree, you know, a jackhammer and a, a shade tree and a parts company nearby that's going to fix the car, polish it, and shine it, and hopefully it'll drive straight when you get it out of, out, out of the shop in about five or six months. Oh. Ooh. Before we we've got to um, move on to our next guest, but before we do, can you give our listeners some advice for, let's say you're a homeowner or a business owner, before, real quick, before, during, and after, what are the key points? No matter what it is that you do in life, you should always have Plan B. All right, you should practice, and this is it's more important. They learn this in the at the World Trade Center, you should always have that disaster recovery plan in place. You ought to know today who is going to remanufacture your car. You should know today that if the windshield gets broken, the worst thing that you can do is to let some jerk come out in a car or in a truck and reset the windshield one man to put a new windshield back in a car because it's convenient. What you've done is compromise the safety and security of that vehicle, and it becomes a rolling death trap if you have a front-end collision later on because they cannot, re they cannot put a new windshield in a car like the robots do at the manufacturing level. cannot be done. All right? uh, the, and I could go on for another 10 broadcasts of giving you all the things about knowing who really knows how to deal with flood damage, know what a public adjuster is, and you should have a public adjuster's phone number uh, in your in your Rolodex, not the insurance salesman under disaster management. You should know which hospital that you need to go to because people walk out the door rather than are carried out the door. You should know what the word disability means. If you have a, a disability insurance policy, you should know that if you're insured by the Prudential Insurance Company of America, in order to be 100% disabled under most of their contracts, you have to have one arm both your arms cut off at or above the wrist. It's not not be able to work. The definition is written in the contract that you have to have a complete loss, not the loss of use, but both your feet have to be cut off at or above the ankles. You have to be dismembered in order to be declared disabled. That's sick stuff, and they sold millions of insurance contracts uh, 
uh, with that that uh, that phrase in there. You need to know what disability is and how to collect the money because what's the sense of owning an airplane if you don't know how to fly it? Would you buy a car and not know how to drive? Would you buy a motorcycle and not know how to ride it? If any of those things are yes, well, then you're just stupid or ignorant. <laughs> I don't know which one. You know, and, and again, this is, this is where it comes. It's called in the big picture risk management. If you're every, life is risk. Buying property is a risk. Owning things are a huge risk. I mean, I own a bunch of stuff that I wish the hell I didn't own now because it's such a risk and such a, it takes so much time and energy to manage it. Uh, just on a day-to-day uh, business. So if, to, to ensure that, what you're asking the insurance companies to do is to reimburse you for financial losses that may you may incur. You better damn well know how to fly the policy. If you don't know how to fly the policy, then don't buy it until you do, because then you will have saved the premium. So prepare before. Always. Know what you're signing when you purchase yeah, the policy. Run a Run a drill, a, a disaster drill. Pretend that you're going to have a fire, a flood, a hospital, any of that stuff. When you pretend like that and you use put it put together with the family. I mean, if, uh, you know, earthquakes, people live in California. Uh, when you get lost during 9-11, people got lost. They dislocated. Where do you find them? And the business, all businesses, when they have a major thing like these the hurricanes, how do you know how to go? Where do you go? What, what, where do you, what's your meeting place all about? That kind of stuff is what we're talking about. Risk management. Okay. It's, risk, it's all about risk management. If you, do not, if you do not manage the risk, the risks are going to manage you. Bottom line. That's well, all the That's a great lead into our, our next guest. Before, before we go, though, how can our listeners contact you, Ron? Uh, you can find me at uh, ronelford.com or go to theplan.com, T-H-E-P-L-A-N.com, and there's the contact information in both of those places. Well, I, we appreciate you coming back on again and, and discussing insurance issues with us this week. If you can stick around, great. I know you have a, an appointment coming up, but uh, thanks again for joining us, Ron. We we always appreciate having you on. It's been been great. You're thanks. welcome, Joe. Thanks, Ron. Clifford. Have have a good time. I unfortunately I have to split. I got to go into the city right now. No so enjoy, and I'll see you on the air. Thanks, All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. I'm the insurance man. Shake my assuring hand. I'm the insurance man. Shake my assuring hand. Okay, our next guest is Marlene Linders. Ms. Linders is the president and CEO of Filters Group International, Inc., infectious disease and risk management consultants. She has years of extensive expertise in development and understanding of construction and design for building systems. She has worked on designing high-risk environments such as surgical suites, transplant, teaching, and urban hospitals, for several level one trauma centers, costing in excess of $4 billion. Her expertise is in environmental epidemiology, indoor indoor air quality, infection control, and the impact it has on occupant patient health. Ms. Linders is a registered nurse, architect, and holds a master's degree in the sciences. She additionally is 
a national speaker and expert witness for some of the largest law firms nationwide. Presently, Filters Group International provides consulting services, corporate strategic positioning to ensure uh, market innovation, education, and corporate risk management programs for disease control. Their clients are architects, engineers, building owners, managers, and service contractors. For more information, you can visit their website at www.fildersgroup.net. Welcome, Marlene. After Ron, we had to calm things down just a little bit with the, the intro music. <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> well, he's, he's a lot of fun, and uh, he's a ball of fire, that gentleman. Well, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Uh, the subject that we really that caught our eye and that we wanted to um, get a little more detail on is the MRSA issue that is going on. Can you, first of all, the acronym police will beat me up if I don't um, have you explain exactly what MRSA is and uh, give us a little background on it. Uh, MRSA, MRSA, MRSA. it's also MRSA. And what that means is methicillin, methicillin resistant Staph aureus, and that is a specific strain of the Staph aureus bacterium that has developed a type of antibiotic resistance to all the penicillins, including methicillin. And because Western society, we've over-prescribed antibiotics, and the overuse of the antibiotics promotes resistance um, in individuals, and it promotes that by the emergence of what I call bacterial subpopulations that are resistant to the prescribed antibiotic. So um, in, I guess in, it was approximately in the year 1961, um, MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, was first discovered in the United Kingdom. And, but now it's widespread. It's nationwide. Actually, it's global. And it occurs particularly in the hospital setting where it is commonly termed um, a superbug. I don't know if you've heard of superbugs or you read about them in, the, in publications or in the newspapers or in articles, but it, it's a very huge issue. Absolutely. And how, it's, excuse how, me? Uh, I was going to ask you, uh, how does MRSA adversely affect those people who contract it? What does it do to them? Well, first of all, it, you, you really have to look at how does one acquire MRSA and how when you look at that, then you can understand how it adversely affects people. So people acquire MRSA first um, because they become resistant. Resistance occurs when the bacteria has developed the ability to allow it to avoid the action of the antibiotics. So, in other words, when you go into the physician's office and the physician has diagnosed you with MRSA, or if you go into the emergency room and you're, you have been diagnosed with MRSA, you're prescribed an antibiotic. But 
you you have been prescribed a broad spectrum antibiotic, and so it, it's non-specific to the bacterium that's in your body, and so the use of antibiotics and the cross-contamination um, are the two main ways for the acquisition of it, and when you get MRSA. MRSA, it's very difficult to get rid of um, because you're so resistant to, to the antibiotic. And we'll go into that in a little bit later in, in you know, in the series, or not in the series, but in the uh, question and answering process here because it, it's a whole different um, type of bacteria. Uh, we use the term cross-contamination in our business pretty widely, and I heard you use it, and I would just like you to define the term cross-contamination and the method in, in, in which you utilized it? Well, cross-contamination means, um, in reference to MRSA, it means that um, there's two particular, two particular ways that it's transmitted. And one is direct, which is skin-to-skin, um, or respiratory droplets. Uh, respiratory droplets means that if you sneeze or if you cough, um, you eject um, a, a, like a, a spray of droplets into the environment. And that in itself can be picked up by the ventilating air conditioning, the ventilating air in the environment that you're in. Indirect would be uh, contaminated hands. That's another way that it's passed, especially in the healthcare environment. But, I, but before we go on, I wanted you, I wanted everyone to know, the callers and the listeners to know that there's two areas of MRSA that are very important to know about. And one is HA MRSA, which is hospital-acquired MRSA. And the next, what we're going to really focus on is community-acquired MRSA. And that's really what th- this particular call is about. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, but are they... The same, back, caused by the same bacteria, just different routes of infection? Um, yes, without elaborating on that, yes. One, one HA is, is referencing you get this, you acquire this in the hospitals, and community acquired is that you get this in community settings, whether it be restaurants, um, public areas. Is the organism environmentally resistant such as time you know like does it live for so many minutes does it or so many hours or days uh, does it just break down in in the normal environment where we have heat light air movement and so on and so forth or is it a a tough bug that is resistant well it's sort of like i guess the best example would be um in response to that question would be Many years ago, we talked about, or we we knew about typhoid Mary. Right. And typhoid typhoid Mary was a carrier who was resistant to the disease of typhoid. And so you can ask the question: Are MRSA carriers resistant? So, and that's really an excellent question because in MRSA, you have what happens: colonization of MRSA is the presence of it in the, the person or in the entity. And when I say entity, I mean the person, the body. And it, it, it occurs in the entity without being symptomatic. You don't, you, 
you walk around with it like typhoid Mary, mm-hmm. and you have no symptoms of it. So colonization all, almost always ends up with infection. And then infection occurs when the bacteria disrupts the body's normal function and then causes a disease. And then it goes on from there. A break in the skin or the mucous membrane occurs, and then the bacteria attacks the person or the entity, and then the bacteria have specific factors that determine how severe they are. And MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus colonization, is more likely to progress to an infection because Staph aureus have more virulent factors. Does that answer your question? Well, kind of. Uh, What I was concerned about is let's say that I am a carrier, and let's say that I sneezed in a room, and we had these droplets that carried uh, the organism, and those droplets settled on a table, and no one went into that room for a week or two weeks or whatever. Do you think that that organism that that came when I sneezed or coughed would still be active? Is it environmentally, is it like hepatitis uh, organisms which can last for a long time in in body fluids that may be left at a crime scene, for instance? Or is this something that's kind of uh, delicate in terms of an organism? The organism, the bacteria itself is, um, it can remain, it, it can be colonized wherever it's, uh, wherever it's spewed, okay. it depends on the recipient of the of the droplets, and so you you have like a source, which is the vector, and then if that vector gives it to a recipient who is um, in a certain state, whether they're immunocompromised or they're very young or they're very old. It, it, it's all it's so environmentally sensitive it, it just depends on the situation itself so that's a hard question to answer but it's a really good question okay thank you well, is there a primary risk group then for the MRSA yeah typically the very young or the very old and the very frail or those are who are um, who are immunocompromised uh, for instance people who have cancer and are on chemotherapy or those who have rheumatoid arthritis um, and are on certain type of drugs that um, suppress their immune systems or those that have AIDS. And they are very susceptible to MRSA, extremely susceptible to MRSA. It, it seems to me the first time I recall hearing, hearing about this was uh, I was working with a gentleman from a veterans hospital, and uh-huh. they were having a tremendous problem with this issue. Do you find that same uh, do you find that same group, the veterans' hospitals, have a very difficult time with this? Well, that would be hospital-acquired MRSA. And it, situations in hospitals are extremely high. There's very high incidence of that. As a matter of fact, um, the HICPAC, which is, HICPAC is the um, Health Information Protection Act, Protection Action, which talks about infection control in the hospitals and mandatory reporting of um, hospital-borne infections. And we are now having a huge statewide or countrywide um, exposure to 
um, reporting of hospital-borne infections. And so what that is is that hospitals have to report confirmed hospital-acquired infections. So there are certain areas in the hospital that are, have higher incidence of, of MRSA, such as cardiac care units, surgical site units, surgical, you know, any type of surgical post-op units, um, neonatal intensive care units. Um, cardiac care units, uh, post-op units, all these type of units have very high incidence of that. And VA hospitals are very high with reporting of MRSA incidences or nosocomial infections. Yes. Okay. Now, what, what can our listeners who are contractors or service providers for, to these high-density type facilities do to ensure they don't contribute to the spread of MRSA? Well, and that's another good question. There's a couple of things. Um, If they're in the public sector or the private sector, if they're dealing with commercial buildings, um, corporations or contractors, if if they're incorporated, they need to have some type of an infectious disease protocol that's embedded into their safety program. And then that becomes in itself a corporate core competency. And it should include continuing education for staff and technicians about MRSA and how it's acquired, how, what you need to do to prevent it, what protocol you need to have. And then they also need to increase awareness to their clients through educational materials or workshops, et cetera, telling them about community-acquired MRSA, how, how they're exposed, what, what is their liability, and what is their risk. That, that, that would be my answer to that. Okay. Is there a way one can test to determine, let's say I'm a janitorial uh, contractor and I have 1,000 employees and we're cleaning millions of square feet of office buildings on, on a nightly basis and you know some of the, uh, the people may have uh, English may not be their first language they're not uh, they may not even be citizens of the United States would it be prudent for me or is it possible to actually have staff tested to determine you know whether typhoid Mary is, is working for me is that a possibility Yes, absolutely. That is a possibility. And environmental services departments are one of the areas that are that really need to have some type of ongoing education or ongoing training for the spread of MRSA and how to reduce that. Because again, environmental cleaning, I mean, that's what they do. They clean the environment. But they're they're in the office environment, they're in the hospital environment, and they need special training on how to reduce their their managers or their owners' um, liability. Now, my understanding is, uh, from talking to you before, Marlene, that you had gone to a conference, uh, I guess it was a, maybe a Mealy's conference or one of the attorney gatherings of some type, and that this was a hot topic. Could you expand on that a little bit or, or elaborate sure. a little bit for us? I attended a seminar in New York City, and it was hosted by the New York Bar Association. And the title of the seminar was MRSA, the New Environmental Toxin. And this came about because of the recent ABC um, 
news program that was on called MRSA, Methicillin Resistant Staph Aureus, the new environmental toxin. And it talked about, um, it, it just talked about how, how at risk are you when you go out into the community or into your hospital for exposure to methicillin resistant staph aureus. So it, it was really interesting because the New York bar had put this on and it, in talking to the attorneys there, I understood that it was a good indicator of where the legal profession is looking in regards to their next compelling cases. MRSA is so huge that the CDC has put out its own initiative at addressing it on a global level. And they put, they, they formed their own, um, their own grouping, if you will, called the MLI, which, which is called the MRSA Leadership Initiative, and it's formed of global healthcare professionals, including doctors, um, nurses, and anyone that has an understanding of an appreciation of the of the microbiology of MRSA and how to prevent that. And because of our high-tech society, we're able to jet from one country to the next in a matter of a few hours or in a matter of a day or so. It's highly, it, it, it can be spread so easily, and we, don't, we just don't understand that. So it, it's really huge, and especially in states that, that are tourist states like California, Florida, et cetera, we're very vulnerable to the exposure of MRSA. Is the skin-to-skin MRSA a greater problem where we have high-density occupation situations, you know, such as schools, jails, prisons? Well, yes. Anywhere where there are group congregates for an extended time would be a high-risk area. So if you go to a gym regularly, regularly and you work out, um, uh that would be a high-risk area. Schools, um, I, I don't know of any particular area or any particular school that has been noted that has had a MRSA outbreak, but prisons have definitely. I've, my company does regularly consulting with pr- prisons as well as with some of these larger um, sports complexes, and they're very well known. But, and, and that, again, is because the environmental services programs does not specifically address the MRSA issue. And the, the staff people need to be shown how to, how to properly clean, what products to use, and what type of equipment is appropriate so it doesn't re-entrain the MRSA into the environment. It's as simple as that. And this or, is the type of service that your group, Filters Group, helps building owners develop these types of programs? Right. That's exactly right. We consult with uh, infectious disease protocol and policies um, in just a a, a plethora of ways, many ways. So it it just depends on the the discipline that people would have. I mean, if they're a building owner, building owners need to know, they need to be asking very pertinent questions. They need to be asking, well, if they're, they outsource service providers such as HVAC or mechanical or engineering controls, what are these people doing to proactively protect them against um, pathogens such as MRSA? Um, or 
what type of disease control program do they have that's embedded in, into their safety program um, that they they would know and that they would accept as acceptable, you know, into their into their building. How are they protecting their tenants? How are they protecting their their staff? I mean, what are they doing? I mean, these the HVAC people or the engineering controls people, they, they go from building to building to building. I mean, I, I have a good example. Recently, we had a um, very large cardiac catheter practice, a physician practice, um, call us, and the administrator asked us to come down because one of their surgeons was in their uh, was in their corridor writing post-op orders, and he had just just done some type of cardiac catheterization on a patient, and here he here this is a very large practice, and they were dotting all their I's, crossing all their T's, and you have to understand that in, in medicine and healthcare, this is a very high risk area, so they have to be very attuned at what they're doing, and as he was writing orders in the corridor, here here comes the um, HVAC guy. And the equipment guy, the biomedical equipment person that was getting ready to service their equipment. And he came in, and one of the HVAC people had a ladder, and he was getting ready to go into, you know, he was opening up the the HVAC stuff. He was pushing the tiles, the ceiling tiles away. And all this stuff comes, you know, comes tumbling down from the ceiling, and landed on the physician's chart. Mm. Now, here's, he, here's the physician who he's standing three feet away from the post-op where he had just done a cardiac catheterization. The patient is very vulnerable. Um, the patient was 67 years old, very vulnerable because he was old and frail. And he was thinking, well, here I am doing my due diligence, and we have these service providers that are coming in that are putting us at risk. And I know I'm doing all, I'm doing the stuff that I'm supposed to be doing, but are they doing the stuff that they're supposed to be doing? Are they dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's? So we were brought in to consult with this, and I said, well, do they have some type of infectious disease protocol? Do they have, do they under, even understand what infectious disease is? So, and these particular providers, service providers had, this was around 4 o'clock in the afternoon, they had been to 35 facilities. So had, you know, what were their clothes carrying? I mean, that's just what it's all about. What, what are we looking at? I mean, does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't make sense that they're doing that, but and he's paying high insurance rates for... Uh, very high. You know, to make sure that he doesn't uh, injure anyone during the course of his work and somebody comes in right behind and starts moving ceiling tile. It doesn't make any sense. But uh, I guess that's what helps keep businesses like yours busy. <laughs> are, you, uh, are you very busy providing these types of services? Extremely busy. Very busy, especially with the, with the um, possible outbreak of the bird flu or pandemic outbreak yes we we do we do a lot of consulting work with with companies small medium large to have some type of infectious disease protocol um but you know it, it not only protects corporations clients it protects their own employees 
and that's another very big issue too. So if if employees are going in and let's just say they're going into healthcare facilities and they're not understanding the nature of the beast, if you will, then those corporations are vulnerable and it doesn't take an employee or anyone too long to all they have to do is Google something with MRSA, M-R-S-A, and they can see that, you know, my employer, we have no protocol with this. I mean, recently I received an email from a very large, it was a national HVAC contractor that says the 80% of what we do is in HIV clinics and we have no infectious disease protocol to protect our, our employees. Are we at risk? Well, this becomes the duh factor. <laughs> yeah, it really does. Yes, so. we are at risk. <laughs> Cliff, you I think really you... really are at risk. Yeah. Mar- Marlene, you mentioned that MR- MRSA or MRSA is a superbug and that it's resistant to antibiotics. Uh, I just wanted to confirm with you that MRSA still remains vulnerable to cleaning methods and common antimicrobial products. Well, how that works is... When, and, and, and I guess I counsel our clients um, if they're addressing specifically health care because health care understands the issue of MRSA, methicillin resistant staph aureus. First of all, you need to know that the thrust of health care is towards outpatient facilities. And VHA, which is Voluntary Hospitals of America, has projected that by the year 2012, 38 million people will be having elected, elective outpatient surgeries. So they will be going to surgery centers outside of the hospital setting. So um, in reference to that, we advise our clients that they have to make sure that they're doing their due diligence. And they have to make sure that when they're addressing the HVAC or engineering controls that they're very compliant with the MRSA issues. And there are products that are EPA registered that are very effective against MRSA. They are effective in the mechanical systems and the air handlers with the exception of the air ducts. And the reason because of the exception of the air ducts is because sometimes if it's apply to the air ducts that it can be disseminated and it, and it can cause, it can trigger um, not asthma, but just a, a type of breathing problem. But many EPA registered products are, are looking at working at that with um, the EPA and seeing if that can be resolved. But there, there, there are products, yes, there, there are products that address that very definitely. So building owners and managers um, hospitals need to be asking their service providers if they outsource these type of services, what are you doing to reduce my liability? What are you doing to, what are you doing to be compliant with our needs? What are you doing to protect the health, safety, and welfare of our patient population or of our tenants of our building or of our staff? What are you doing? And the majority of those service providers will say, well, I don't know. And that, that is what um, building owners need to be looking at. Is there anything you'd like to add before we go, Marlene? I, 
No, I guess basically I would like to say that MRSA is an emerging, emerging burden in the public health, in, in public health as well as in the private sector, and we need to be looking at policy and protocol to address these issues. So if you're not doing that, you need to step back and, and make sure that you're protecting your clients and your staff. And what about people who are going to these hospitals? What kind of precautions can they take? What, as a consumer, you know, I consume, I'm a consumer of hospital services from time to time, or my children are. What, is there anything we can do besides asking, do they have a program? Most hospitals, no, they do not have a program uh, addressing MRSA. They don't even like to talk about that, me being an RN. I mean, I was in that whole campus for such a long time. Um, they will, I guess, basically the thing that I would say is, is that keep yourself healthy, um, ask questions, and if people say to you in the hospital setting, well, we don't have a problem with that here, I would just ask, ask questions that are more probing. You know, how are you protecting me against MRSA? What, what, do you, what proactive measures are you taking? How do I know that I'm in a facility that doesn't have um, a high a high incidence of MRSA. And by the way, you, you can access uh, that um, online. There are, are, in different states, there are specific websites that address the report card, if you will, of each specific hospital. Um, and it will show you the incidence of hospital-acquired infections. So then you can make your choice from there. Back to what uh, our first guest said also, Ron, uh, Ron Alfred mentioned that, you know, you should know where you want to be taken when you have an accident, and uh, maybe you should check in advance. That's exactly right. My guess is, Marlene, you know what hospital you'd like to go to if you had to. I would just not like to go to a hospital. (laughs) (laughs) I I have one final question for you. You know, um, you mentioned this HICTAC and the health uh, you know, the hospital information reporting and so on and so forth. Is that public knowledge? Uh, could a consumer look and determine what the nosocomial infection rate of is a hospital if he's choosing to have some sort of electric or um, elected procedure? Well, you broke up. I couldn't, you broke up there for a minute. So could you repeat Okay, I'll, I'll repeat it. If I'm a consumer and I'm having an elected procedure at a hospital, is there mm-hmm. a way that I can go online or some other method, find out what the nosocomial infection rate is at a, ver- at a variety of hospitals so I can check one that has, so I can select one that has the lowest nosocomial rate? Can I get that information? Yes, there absolutely is. And it's different state per state. However, if someone is interested, if someone's going in for elective surgery, and they're interested in their report card of that particular hospital, if they emailed us at mlinders at fieldersgroup.net, we will send them the link, and they would be, um, be able to look that up online, yes. And now, in Florida, it's a specific link, but it's different link. It's different state per state, and we would be able to help them with that, yes. I have anticipated our last question, too, which was how people can contact you. Yeah, please repeat it again. It's M Linders, L-I-N-D-E-R-S, as in Sam, at Filders Group, and Filders is spelled with a P-H-I-L-D-E-R-S, as in Sam, group, like a group of people, dot net. 
and I would be more than willing to email them that, that information. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Marlene. We appreciate your uh, passion and your knowledge about the subject and hope we can have you back again to go into a little more detail when we have uh, when we're not pre-recording things. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. That's been our show for this week. I'd like to once again thank our sponsors for helping us make it through another week here on the air. Uh, Also, I'd like to thank my co-host, Cliff Slotnick here. It's a pleasure, Joe. Our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, wasn't able to join us today, but we uh, always like to throw a mention in for Dieter. Cyber jockey, Zach Slotnick, for helping us with the uh, controls. And most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners, thank you all. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next live broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.